Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Joe and I are honored to be joined today by Margaret Sullivan. Margaret is the media columnist for The Washington Post. And before that, Margaret served as the fifth public editor of The New York Times and was the first woman to hold that position. Margaret is a native of Lackawanna, New York, and began her career as a summer intern at the Buffalo News, becoming the first woman editor there and managing editor in its 139-year history of that storied newspaper. Margaret Sullivan, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you very much. Fun to be here with you. So Lackawanna, New York, is in the western part of the state, located in Erie County. And that's also the birthplace of the late, great Tim Russert. And while he was born in Germany, CNN's Wolf Blitzer also grew up in Erie County and considers Buffalo to be his hometown. So is there something in the water over there or, or what's going on? It's just a great place. And it seems to, you know, seems to sort of spawn media types. I can't explain exactly why. <laughs> so it seems. I, but uh, I, I certainly knew Tim and I, and I know Wolf and, you know, we wear our Buffalo roots proudly. Buffalo pride. I like it. So you recently wrote about the state of local journalism in in that context, tell us about your time at the Buffalo News. So I was there a long time. I came as a summer intern, and I kind of made my way through the ranks. I mean, it is funny because, uh, you know, when I came there, there were two papers in Buffalo, as there were in a lot of cities. And um, I had internship offers at, at both places, which made my mother very, very happy. And, you know, but I said to Dad, you know, what should I do? And he, he said, you should go to the Buffalo Evening News because that is the dominant paper. And Dad was kind of right because they hired me at the end of the summer. And two years later, the morning paper was out of business. And I was at the evening paper. Yeah. So, you know, I was a reporter and a columnist and did all kinds of different things and eventually kind of worked my way up. Uh, through management and, you know, was really honored to be the first woman editor of the paper and did it for a long time, did it for 12 years. Yeah, that's an incredible honor. Has there been another woman in that position? No, since? there's only been one person since. Mike Connolly is the editor, um, and and he's been there since I left in 2012. But I was there in 2008 when things really began to tank in local newspapers. And we had rounds of buyouts and we yeah. did not have layoffs, I'm happy to say. But but it was tough. You know, the print advertising model was disintegrating. And, and it hasn't – the whole situation has not improved. And this is true around the country with rare exceptions. So what's, what's the solution? What's the future? I mean, I really wish I knew that, Joe. I really do because it makes me very sad. I mean, it's got – it's some combination of nonprofit news organizations – uh, local people deciding to really support the paper, local philanthropy, and I don't know what else. There's no clear answer. So as we noted at the top, after your time at the Buffalo News, you served as the public editor of the New York Times. Explain for those who may not know what a public editor is and what she does. So the public editor, uh, which is a position that's been discontinued at the Times and a lot of other places, but not while I was there, I'm happy to say, is a kind of a reader representative and internal media critic. So you are not exactly of the times. You are you are 
looking at it as an observer and as a critic, although an employee of the paper. And so there's an inherent tension there. I think I was a pretty tough critic, although I I also think I was fair. But it's very tough to come to work every day and essentially be in the role of criticizing your colleagues. I would imagine. Yeah. For the first time Margaret and I ever crossed paths was when uh, the New York Times did a story on the front page uh, about the NFL, which I objected to. Took issue. Took issue with. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And it was a very interesting process because, um, you know, from the editorial side, I got We Stand By Our Story. And, I, you know, I talked to Dean uh, and he was like, "I, I appreciate everything you're telling me, but We Stand By Our Story. But Margaret and I had a very healthy back and forth. Uh, at the end of the day, the story stood. But, uh, you know, just as a, a communicator and as a reader, I felt like at least I was heard. Right. And it's a way to people don't get satisfaction from the paper, like I want a correction or this is wrong or this was unfair or I've been plagiarized or something. And they don't get any help from the usual channels. It's a place for them to turn, sort of like an ombudsman in any organization at a university or or any place else. So when you were in that position, I believe we counted correctly, you wrote 691 blog posts or columns. Uh, That's productive, to say the least. (laughs) Very. Uh, You were the first woman to hold the post, as we said, and you were the longest-serving public editor at the Times to date. How did you approach that assignment differently than your predecessors? Well, for one thing, I approached it in a much more digitally forward way Mm. so that um, instead of – and this is not to say that my predecessors did none of this. I just – did a lot more of it. I basically decided I was going to kind of treat it as a conversation, an ongoing daily conversation between myself and the readers of the Times. And so whatever issue would come up, I would deal with it immediately. It was funny because the first day that I was on the job, I think that the editors expected me to kind of come in and get the lay of the land and go to lunch a few times and do a few different things. But I was determined that I was going to write a blog post the first day which I did. And it it was about the whole issue of fact-checking, which was sort of hot at the time, you know, kind of new and hot. And um, I had a great assistant. I always had these great assistants because the assistants at the Times are these extremely overqualified young people. And so I wrote this thing and my assistant read it and he said, are you sure that uh, Michael Cooper is at the Democratic National Convention? And I, I was quoting him and saying, you know, I talked to him by phone from the... And I said, mm, no, not really. Let's take that part out. And and then the post went live. And I went out into the hallway and there was Michael Cooper in the halls of the New York Times. So it would have been uh. extremely <laughs> embarrassing, especially because it was about fact checking. No kidding. But luckily, I had a really sharp assistant and I always had fabulous assistants. So oh, they helped amazing. me tremendously. I mean, it, it was, again, from a consumer of the public editor, it was a really important change because it used to be all or nothing. If Margaret or, or her predecessor would write a, a, a column critiquing a story, that was a big deal. It Once was, every two weeks, what, a long know, piece. Yeah, and, you it know. Re- and it really meant that the story had a fundamental flaw in it as opposed to the story was 30 degrees too right. far left or right. That's right. And with the blog posts, it allowed people who were being covered by the Times to make their point in a way that wasn't as dramatic as and probably as politically 
charged exactly. within the times. Right, because so it, it really became was, this norm yeah. of like, okay, this is the thing today. And I would do this – I had this sort of process where I would – you know, we got tons and tons of mail. And my assistant would sort of do triage and send me the things that seemed important. And so I would sort of pick a topic and I would air the reader's complaint and normally quote from some some of the really smart readers of the Times. Then I would go to the editor in charge or maybe the top editor, who was Jill Abramson at first, and then Dean Becquet, get their point of view, put them both in the post. And then it sort of at the end, I would say, and here's my take. And I would say who I sort of sided with or say they both have good points or whatever it might be. So that was that was my approach. Very disciplined approach. Uh, so in your last column for The Times three years ago this week, you offered a few recommendations based on what you had heard from the readers. And among them were, remember that speed kills, keep clickbait at bay, and protect credibility with readers above all else. Now, a lot has happened in journalism and the world in the three years since you wrote that. How well do you think the advice was listened to, not just by The Times, but by journalists and journalism in general? Well, this, these are all kind of continuing issues. The speed thing is, is always a problem. And now in the, in the digital realm where there's so much competition, it's very hard to slow down. Mistakes have been made to use the passive voice. It's problematic. And I think we learn it all the time. We all learn it all the time and then have to learn it again. And when you think of the school shootings or just some of the huge events that have happened covering Trump, all those things, I think the record overall, you know, it's really hard to talk about the media writ large. What are we talking about? Fox News, The New York Times, Breitbart. But I think people are aware of that. Uh, clickbait, we like to call that engagement, but um, <laughs> it is an issue. It's always an issue. And, you know, right now at the Washington Post, volume of clicks has become less important than subscriptions. And I'm pretty sure that's true at the Times, too. Huh. And that does sort of that does sort of change the focus a little bit because we're trying to develop a long-term trusting relationship with readers that they are willing to pay for. And that's a lot different from just, you know, I'm going to put some stuff up here that's really sexy and now moving on. Right. Especially in the world of Twitter where you you click on the link and read the first three lines. and If you're lucky. If you're lucky. And and that's how you consume it superficially. All right. So switching topics here now, talking about your most recent column and talking about Julian Assange. He was arrested. And on the day he was arrested, you framed uh, the debate in The Washington Post this way. Quote, is he essentially a publisher, though a notably strange one, who believes in taking radical steps to expose government secrets and who thus should be afforded the same First Amendment protections given to news organizations? Or is he a reckless traitor and by no means a journalist who deserves no such consideration and who should be prosecuted without worrying about free press concerns? So, We'll ask you your own question. Is Assange a publisher, a journalist? Is he a reckless trader or something else? Well, I don't actually see Julian Assange as a journalist. and um, it, But this is a tricky point because while I don't see him as a journalist, because I think journalists not only expose secrets but bring judgment to bear and make more considered decisions than just dumping tremendous amounts of classified data out into the world and saying like, well... If it kills people, so be it. I don't see him as a journalist, but the the problem is that what happens with his 
case will affect what happens to legitimate journalists. So as journalists and as press, free press advocates and First Amendment aficionados, uh, we have to be cognizant of that and defend him, even though he's practically indefensible. So my column essentially made the case that reporters and press advocates need to be very careful about sort of throwing him to the wolves or just saying, well, he's not one of us. And so we don't care what happens to him because it may well come back around to, to bite us. Yeah, I, think, I, I like the way you framed it. But I think that in the current envi- environment, it's a little bit of a false choice because mm. you can be both. And it's not so much journalism anymore. It's publishing. Yes. And he is a publisher. There's no doubt that he has a platform. He puts information out with content. People consume it. Right. He's a classic publisher. In my view, he's also a, a, a traitor, someone who has served the interest of Russian intelligence over the idea that the press should be free. And he's not, he's not a classic uh, whistleblower. I mean, in the same way that Alex Jones at InfoWars is a publisher. He produces content, and he distributes it, and is a despicable human being. Where do you come down, though, on when you look at the indictment and how narrowly it's drawn? I mean, it seems pretty clever that, yes. that they started this as a way to go after leakers, but got pretty smart on this, as in, like, we don't want to touch the third rail of the First Amendment, and really are, are just focusing on the, to put it simply, the breaking and entering, mm-hmm. the, the hacking, you know, the prima facie case of illegal and criminal activity. Right. So the charges is not done under the Espionage Act, which has been used to go after leakers and journalists, but it is a very narrow charge. And it essentially says, well, you helped Chelsea Manning hack into a Defense Department secure computer. So you're right, the breaking and entering part of it. It is drawn very narrowly. It's, I think it is an effort to kind of move around the press rights issue. But because it talks a lot in the indictment about, you know, sort of the methods of encryption, of source prote- protection, all these things that we do that are actually very important practices, I'm afraid that it all gets swept up together and that opens the door. I'm not convinced and neither are any Press organiza- free press organizations or advocates or most First Amendment attorneys are worried about this because even though it is drawn narrowly, it could have wide-ranging effects. I think you've made a really important distinction about you know how real news organizations handle classified information. I know firsthand from my time at the White House when the New York Times or the Washington Post or someone would get a hold of something – There'd be very serious conversations that involved the New York Times lawyer, the Washington Post editor, the reporter who had the information. Information was sometimes delayed in use. Sometimes it was buried. But it was done in a very serious, upfront way. And like any industry, you get judged by the worst actors. How do you make this case to people that, you know, there are times that this kind of whistleblowing is in the national interest, in the public's interest, and other times it's just raw sewage going out. Right. Well, you know, you can remind people if they have the historical perspective of the Pentagon Papers. So, you know, a very long time ago, early 70s, uh, when Daniel Ellsberg essentially stole these documents from the Pentagon and handed them off to the New York Times and then the Washington Post, the secret history of the Vietnam War. Did that serve the country? Yes, I think it did. Was he stealing classified information? Yes, he was. A lot of people will say, oh, but that that material is is secret and classified, so you should never, ever expose it. Well, if if we only told people what 
the government, uh, in its wisdom, wanted us to hear, I think we would be much poorer as a society. But unfortunately, the extreme of that is, again, these data dumps that don't redact anything, that are irresponsible. And Assange used to be more responsible. He used to he used to you know, consider more redacting conversations like the ones you're talking about, Joe. But that has changed as he's, you know, become, I think, more extreme and downright weirder. Yeah, the other, you know, element of this, which is a an undercover scandal is the overuse of classification. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, Absolutely. You know, and it's become very, a very, it's become a political tool to keep things. It has gotten worse over time. And that's something that I think regular folks don't really understand. And, and it's, and it's hard to explain this stuff. It's been very hard for me over the past, you know, 24 hours to try to defend my stance on Julian Assange because of this thing of they don't understand how much is unfairly and wrongly classified. They don't understand that what Assange happens to him can affect regular journalists. And it's it's pretty... It's pretty nuanced. It is not something you can sort of explain in a, in a quick phrase or a sentence. So going back to your original point about whether or not he's a journalist, I think that is the first of two important questions. So I think step one is, is what he did journalism? No. But the second one is, is what he was indicted for journalism? And I think that answer can be different. And I think that answer maybe was different. And looking at the seven-page indictment, short indictment, single-count indictment from both a journalist and a lawyer's eye, I understand on the one hand It is very narrowly drawn. It is under this Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. It's a single count about breaking and entering to a computer that you don't have authorized access to. But to your point, Margaret, the language in the indictment, particularly I think around paragraph 12 and 13, the language of the indictment doesn't necessarily follow the the law that that's in the count that the computer fraud and abuse act it actually says the issue is that he you know knowingly was providing classified receiving classified records and knowingly Manning was knowingly providing those records and that was the conspiracy and i think that to your point is that's where the issue is and and that yeah. language in the indictment um under the auspice of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act could give them room to expand in the future if they wanted to to tack on charges. Oh, that's so, absolutely right. Then, and that's the worry. It's not while the nub of it is about breaking and entering the language around it and the sort of possibility of interpretation is much broader. Journalists, national security journalists particularly, receive secret or classified right. or sensitive information in careful ways all the time. And that's why we have secure drop boxes. It's why we reporters use Signal, which is a, an encryption um, messaging system or phone system. So all of this stuff has kind of come along in recent years since Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning. So it's uh, it's all wrapped up together. And I don't think it can be separated out as easily as people would like it to be. So now here's the question is, is what's next? I don't know what's next. There seems to be three different answers from from this, and we each have a perspective. The journalist, how do you? Where do you see the story going? The lawyer, I'm uh, pointing at Katie. This likely could take years and get tied up. And I'll bet clean up and talk about. There's some really weird politics that are going to come into play here. So, Margaret, why don't you go first? I think that Assange is such a. Um, it's going to be hard to sort of rally support behind him. I think he's going to be a test case, and 
that'll be unfortunate, but it'll be cheered. From the legal perspective, I think it's going to take a long time. Lawfare had a piece out today talking about people who have been previously indicted under this law or similar laws uh, in other countries that we were trying to extradite and take three to even 10 years, and even then it wasn't successful. I think then Cabinet Secretary Theresa May blocked the extradition of one of the individuals. And I think we're looking at the same thing here. And there may be convenient outs to where we don't even have to answer that question, and and maybe he doesn't ever come here. But I think the legal battle is just the beginning of a long road. And finally, the politics. I mean, this couldn't come at a more awkward time for the president loves WikiLeaks. He mentioned it 160 times in the last two weeks. Of now, he de- now he and denies. Now, and that, now he doesn't know what it is. He said, it's not my thing, which I hadn't heard that phrase in about 30 years. But, you know, he's an older guy. It's not in the indictment. There's nothing that ties Julian Assange to what Mueller has done. WikiLeaks as an organization is tied. It's organization one in uh, one of the indictments. But he could play a big role in, the, in, in at a minimum in the Roger Stone case. Uh, And I think there will be a lot of pressure on the prosecutors to uh, make sure they win that case. I mean, it will be a highly charged political battle. And if they lose that, we may see a lot more of this exoneration, victory tours and all that stuff, certainly with the character that Roger Stone is. So he comes with a little bit of political leverage. Right. And I think that that may turn out to be the thing that cuts through you know, Katie's three to 10 year timeline, because when you want to drag your feet as a lawyer, you can. Um, <laughs> uh, but Sometimes. I mean, this, you know, when I, I was sitting at CNN on set getting ready to talk about Trump's taxes, I think, when this broke. And my first thought was, boy, this is mixed news for President Donald Trump, yeah. uh, which is, in, you know, in one sense, they get the, they get a guy who's been a thorn in our side. On the other hand, it really complicates things for him. Yeah, um, and, and it is so unusual for him to say, uh, I don't have anything. He, he has something to say about everything. Yeah. And so for him to sort of just really, you know, move away from it is telling. So we want to talk about another recent column that you wrote. And the headline was, Serious Journalists Should Be Proud Of Not Bullied Over Their Russia Reporting. And in it, you respond to conservative critics like Sean Hannity and National Review's uh, Rich Lowry, who say there needs to be a reckoning on news coverage following Bill Barr's letter on the Mueller report. And you cite case after case where journalists got the story right and give your own reckoning. Quote, I reckon that reporting by The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, BuzzFeed, CNN, Bloomberg News, The Daily Beast, Mother Jones, ProPublica, and others drove forward a national conversation that needed to happen. As Americans, we saw with their own eyes Trump's bizarre efforts to ingratiate himself with Russian President Vladimir Putin, that reporting mattered and provided context, and that shouldn't be forgotten or swept aside now. Quote, is the criticism purely political or do you think that some people heard what they wanted to hear, didn't manage their own expectations and now blame the press for getting it wrong? Well, you know, I can't say that the press was perfect in by any means in its coverage of what might be in the Mueller report. There was a lot of anticipation, you know, at MSNBC, particularly Rachel Maddow, particularly there, that 
you know, there would be indictments. She didn't have any way of knowing this, but, you know, she certainly had a lot of guests on. MSNBC made a cottage industry out of this whole subject. And so the finally, the bar letter, we can't call it the Mueller report because we don't know what that says, but, you know, there are no new indictments in it. And everybody, of course, has forgotten the indictments that have that have already come to pass. And it looks like at that point, like, wow, um, that was all very terribly misleading what had been reported. And there was a lot of a lot of criticism of it. And some of it was legit. But I stand by the fact that the serious news reporting that broke stories was was important. President Trump has mocked this, but the New York Times and the Washington Post both won Pulitzer Prizes for their coverage of connections between uh, the Russians and the Trump administration or the Trump campaign. So a, a lot of important reporting got done, and I don't think that it needed to be disparaged the way it was. I would take it further. I think that the last two years has been really the revival of the great New York Times, Washington Post competition to break stories, to really push. Um, And the reason that I think there's been such spectacular reporting is the context. I tend to judge everything against my own life. So in 1998, the last time we had something of this import, some of the investigative reporters were more like stenographers. They would just call up the independent counsel's office every morning and be given something on a, a silver platter. These guys, as far as I can tell, were getting nothing from Mueller's office or very little, maybe some guidance a little bit here and there. So they were out doing the old-fashioned work of reporting the story, and they put together – you're right, we haven't seen the Mueller report, so we don't know what the answer is. But we have some idea based on the reporting. So I I completely agree. Let me go post-Bar Letter, though, and say did the media – uh, overreact to the bar letter. It's a leading question because you'll tell you can tell what I think. Well, I agree yeah, with yeah. you. Uh, but did they overreact and and basically give them a pass for you know, something that they didn't have the basis for? There was so much anticipation about the Mueller report. When's it coming? Is it going to be this Friday at five o'clock? Or you know when will it happen? So then you know we know that it it's out and. Then Barr puts his letter out, and there was so much sort of pent-up anticipation that I think – I mean, I'm not making excuses. I think the the media did a poor, very poor job of reporting on that and basically reported it exactly the way the Trump administration would have loved to have it reported, which was to say – in many cases, I think even to use his words, complete and total exoneration. Well, that that's not true. In fact, the Barr says in his letter that Mueller would not exonerate on obstruction of justice. So it was accepted too uh, credulously. There was a lack of journalistic skepticism and, you know, headlines went too far. And I mean, I think since then it's been sort of reeled back in a little bit. But um, pretty bad, pretty bad performance. So from your perspective, how much of it was going to your leaving note at the New York Times, this, the speed of trying to be there first, and how much of it was the residual effect of the sustained attack on the media? Every journalist that I know gets up every morning and says, I wish Trump wasn't attacking me, but it doesn't affect me. And I don't believe any of them. It does affect them. It does feel to me like... There were a lot of people who were doubting themselves for two or three days. If you, I think you're right. But I, how, how would you 
well, you know, how would how would you look at that? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was there. You know, there was some content to report here. There were not going to be any new indictments. There was exoneration on collusion or conspiracy or whatever we want to call it. And there was, you know, sort of an odd, maybe, maybe not on obstruction. So those things I think we do know, although now there have been a little, there has been a little bit of leaking from the special counsel's office to say, we don't really think the characterization was quite right. I mean, it's hard to parse exactly why, but I think some of it was speed, not really knowing what was there and going with the kind of cartoonish, just the top line of information without enough nuance and without enough attribution. I mean, it really was not attributed to the bar letter. It was like, this is what the Mueller report says in many places. Again, I mentioned this in a column, but it I, I was shocked that, you know, it was the same weekend, maybe the next day or something, or maybe even that very day. But Scott Pelley, who I have a lot of respect for on 60 Minutes, and I, you know, I've written columns praising him for being tough. As he introduced 60 Minutes that night, he just sort of said, you know, there was that little bit of news that they lead in in with. And he basically said that the president had been exonerated in the Mueller report. And I'm watching it going like, wow, really? It actually does not say that. We don't know that. And in fact, we know something other than that. So, you know, it was that was not good. One of the other really interesting um, parts of that column was when you talked to the editor of the Huffington Post, um, who said, um, and I'll, I'll characterize it, and then you can tell me a little bit more about the conversation, that it's not that they don't think it's a big story, but when they travel around, people aren't as obsessed to, with it as we are. Tell me about that, and what does it mean going forward? So, I mean, I, I've, I found this in my own reporting, that when I talk to people in western New York, which I've done a lot of because I hang out there in the summer sometimes, it's not on their – the Russian investigation is not on their minds. What's on their minds is pocketbook issues, their mortgage, their children's economic well-being, health care. Right. Those are the things that matter. Not inside the, the Beltline no, bubble issues. No, not at all. And so, um, you know, what, what Lydia Polgreen of Huffington Post told me is she did these two listening tours of the country, or I don't know what she called them. I think that's Hillary's phrase. But anyway, after doing that, they decided not to put a lot of resources against the Russian story. So speaking of Hillary and former uh, presidential candidates, we want to switch gears and talk a little bit about the early coverage of the 2020 presidential campaign and the battle for the Democratic nominee. Who are the B-boys and why do they seem to be sucking all of the air or maybe the ink out of the room? So I wrote a column with the the phrase the B-boys in it, which is also a it's a rap reference, but that's not what I meant. What, what I meant was Biden... Bernie and Beto. It was right after Beto O'Rourke had launched. And, you know, when he launched, it was with the Vanity Fair cover. Joe Biden has still not declared his candidacy. Bernie Sanders, all I felt getting a tremendous amount of media attention. And some of the women candidates and some of the other candidates who weren't established, well, I guess Beto's not really established, but the usual suspects were getting shunted aside. And I mean, that happens. Uh, Of course, there are going to be people who are immediate attention getters. But I think we have a very, I know we have a historically diverse field. A lot of women. um, There are people of color. There's a gay mayor of a small town. And it's grating to me to see 
only the B-boys getting the attention. Not only, but largely. I think most objective people uh, after 2016 looked at the coverage of Hillary and said, you know, we didn't get it right there. We didn't. We there was something that we missed. And um, I mean, was the autopsy done and yes. over in a day? Have we have have we learned? Has talk talk about within the Washington Post? You know, what kind of conversations have gone on about how do we start treating uh, men and women equally or as equally as you can or as fairly, and not have the only shooting stars being men? Well, you know, I have to be clear about this. I'm not in on those conversations. You know, I, I, I'm a media critic. I'm not sitting in the room uh, with the national political staff. So but, I, but you I don't go to know. The, you go to the cafeteria. Sure, sure. But I, I think, I mean, I'd, I'd rather talk more generally that there is, um, there is an admission, I think, or an understanding that there was a false equivalency in the campaign coverage, that Hillary, the coverage of Hillary Clinton's email scandal, if you want to call it that, and I guess we can, uh, was pumped up and made larger and given way too much attention in order to sort of measure up to the all the things that were shocking and weird and wrong about Donald Trump's background and, and statements. And so it just never made sense. And I think so much can be explained by people you know, in the media and in politics and in the FBI and elsewhere being quite sure that she would be elected. And so therefore, you know, you did these things. Therefore, your coverage was tough. Therefore, you're, if you're Kent Comey, you come out and make the reckless report. All of these things because not many people believed that Donald Trump could actually win. And so he stood everything on its head. But I think so much can be explained by that, that, no, she was going to be the president, so let's start covering it in this tough way now. So keeping moving forward to 2020, in, in your opinion, why is it so much harder for a woman candidate to be likable than a male? I mean, there's a, it's a weird thing. I think that there's a lot of built-in sexism and misogyny in our society. There's just no way to get around it. And, you know, there's this whole thing of, well, I'd like to, you know, you hear people say this, and it's been sort of become a, you know, a sort of bitter joke. Well, I'd like to see, of course, I'd like to vote for a woman, just not this woman. So just not that woman and not this one and not the next one. So then, well, gee, there seems to be a pattern here. So I don't know that the media can fix that. But I think being aware of it is really important. I think the likability standard is also different for men and women. For men, we often say, somebody I'd like to grab a beer with. I don't usually hear that phrase applied to female candidates. And I think what's likable in female candidates on the national stage, at least in the current American mindset, is different than what's likable in the male candidates. And so they're they're not only battling it being harder to be likable to begin with, but they're also battling against a different set of standards and rules. Well, there's, there's something that's really interesting to me. And I've, you know, Maggie Astor at The New York Times wrote a great story about this, not just about this, but this was part of it, is that in order to get elected, Men actually don't have to be likable. It helps, but they can get elected if they're not likable. Right. Women must be likable. One of the things that makes women unlikable, this is all, you know, social science research. One of the things that makes women unlikable is ambition. ambition. So, you know, I think if you're running for president, you're probably ambitious. And, One if, would you're, think. and if you're ambitious, 
that's going to help make you unlikable. And if you're unlikable, you can't get elected. I mean, I think that's too simple. And maybe we've grown up a little bit. And we've certainly seen lots of women get elected in other countries. And, you know, it's not black and white. But I think that factor is definitely there. If you look at different characteristics, you know, men, male candidates who are loud are forceful. Women candidates who are loud are shrill. Exactly. You know, men who throw themselves out first are seen as leaders. Women are seen as overly ambitious. There's, you know, and again, we're, we're not going to solve this problem sitting around this table. I, I am interested, though, in, and this is cafeteria talk, not particularly the Washington Post or anything. What's the fix on that, if, if there is one? So I just came back from this uh, this Neiman Foundation and and uh, University of Chicago look ahead to campaign coverage in 2020. And this was one of the subjects that came up. And I mean, I had this panel of Jonathan Martin from the New York Times and and Eliana Johnson from Politico and people like that. And I said to them, is anything going to be different? Or are we going to kind of do it the same way? And, you know, you do hear people say, and they said, no, we have learned some things and we are going to do things differently. Um, But it's not, and they probably aren't going to unveil it to me or in front of a a crowd like that. I think, though, that the horse race coverage that tends to dominate will continue. I don't think it has to be a split between horse race and policy. I think there are some ways to make that stuff a lot sexier and a lot more interesting because policy issues matter to people. I mean, immigration obviously has mattered to people. Healthcare really matters to people. So um, and it's the economy, stupid, right? So all of those things, I think, you know, are ways that we can get a little bit more serious. I think uh, we could keep you here for the next we three could. hours. Fun but... conversation. We never even said the words Fox News. Yeah, no. We, you know, we had Fox News on the I list. Know. Yeah. But when Assange happened, we were like, that's that's well, more that's time. Well, that's an evergreen. We can come back. We, right. we can definitely. We can. We, and we will definitely come back to that because there's nothing that gets me going more uh, the cancer of Fox and the, the impact it has, not just on the country, the impact it has on Republican leadership. And we will... We can talk about that another time. Please come back for a second date. We'll do. We'll do. do. (laughs) Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. All right. So now that we have Joe here as a regular co-host, we like to pick his brain about the happenings of recent times and actually want to talk to you, Joe, about uh, your recent column with CNN talking about Donald Trump. And let's talk about Trump and Reagan. Beyond a shared campaign slogan, Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan seem to be two different kinds of Republicans. And in Reagan's farewell address, he famously said that if there had to be walls around his shining city on a hill, quote, those walls had doors and the doors were open to all with the heart and the will to get here. But there's another Reagan quote, one from his inaugural address that does apply here. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. So isn't this just a logical extension of Reaganism? You know, I think if you talk to Republicans in Washington, they'll say, yes, Reagan is the god of Republicanism. My um, guess is that he's rolled over multiple times in his grave over the last two years. But what I was thinking about the column, and it struck me that there's something very different about Donald Trump. And that's not that's not new or novel. But Republicans always talk about um uh, the market being the solution, the government needs to get out of the way. It needs to be smaller. It needs to be uh, more efficient. We need to allow 
the states to make decisions. We need to allow the markets to make decisions. We need to allow individual families to make decisions rather than the federal government making decisions. Now, they don't ever f- follow through on any of those things, but that's the that's the philosophy. And and Trump is not there at all. And I, it, it got me thinking as to why and what he's up to. In fact, I think Donald Trump is trying to sabotage the actual performance of the government. I mean, you saw this very early on with health care. Rather than put an alternative plan up on Obamacare, he tried to kill, and he has taken many steps to kill Obamacare. Well, who gets hurt there? The people who are paying the premiums. The premiums are up because the government stopped doing the things to make it easy to to access Obamacare. Then you have this whole specter of anti-intellectualism and anti-professionalism. Anyone who's got any expertise, anyone who says to the president, no, sir, you're wrong, or you can't do that, gets fired. Half the cabinet. We've got Rex Tillerson. We've got Jim Mattis, Kristen Nielsen. All these experts are now gone. And I think a lot of people talk about how Trump just doesn't know how Washington works. He doesn't know how policy works. And, and and I kind of bought that for the first year, but I don't anymore. And I think now, and again, I don't think he came into office with a plan. I don't think he came in and said, by the end of my first term, I'm going to abolish Congress and it's going to be an authoritarian state. But I think the way he's reacted to people who push back with him, he's decided, I want to run this like I run my business, where I make all the decisions, like at the convention where he said, only I can solve these problems. And he's taking a sledgehammer to the infrastructure of our democracy. Just this week, we saw the two, I think, most stark examples. The Federal Reserve Board is little known in the country, but it's probably the most important independent agency in the world. It sets our monetary policy. Our economy runs based on what they do, which way it gets pushed, up, down, you know, in, out. The rest of the world's economy reacts to what our Fed did. When the world's financial system was collapsing in 2008, it was Ben Bernanke, at the, the head of the Fed, who, who sat down and got everyone in the room and saved the world's financial system. I mean, I'm not being hyperbolic here. He did it. And it's the last bastion of nonpartisan policymaking in Washington, D.C. And Donald Trump, in the last week, 10 days, has nominated two incredibly unqualified political people to put on. Now, he wants interest rates to go down before the election so that the economy grows faster. That's not the job of the Fed. The Fed doesn't look at the electoral, the election calendar. It looks at the economy. And right now they're holding rates steady, not cut, cutting them. He nominated Stephen Moore, who is a Republican partisan used to write editorials for the Wall Street Journal, has an economics degree, is not an economist. Nobody considers him an economist. And, you know, is somewhat of a joke um, in the the economic community. Then he raised the ante and and nominated Herman Cain. You might remember him from the last election where he had his famous 999 tax plan that I still don't understand. More importantly, Herman Cain dropped out of the race because several serious, incredible charges of sexual harassment. But the one that gets me is, okay, what did he do once he dropped out? He went into business promoting penny stocks. You know, what are penny stocks? Penny stocks are stocks that are hugely risky that get marketed to unsophisticated consumers. 
consumers who you know can take. So he writes letters to consumers saying, if you invest in this stock, you can turn $1,000 into $800,000 within a year. People should go to jail for that, not sit on the Federal Reserve. So he is he is so demeaning the institutions of government. And once they all get demeaned and start to crumble, then it's very easy to look up and say, hey, this democracy ain't working anymore. Maybe we should try something different. So I think it's really insidious and really dangerous what's going on right now. So do you think that's the ultimate motivation to this, what you describe as a sledgehammer approach to eventually create this mentality that maybe democracy is not? I, I don't think he came in thinking that, but I think he he has worked himself into that place where only I can solve these problems and I just need the power to do it. And we've seen this throughout history. The, the worst despots of the world were originally democratically elected. You know, I'm not going to break the rule of comparing them to a former leader of Germany, but they're democratically elected and then they they mold the system to their own devices. I think he has um, evolved and that's exactly what he's trying to do now. I'll give you one example. Why does he keep talking about election fraud? Why does he keep saying that in 2016, 3 million people voted illegally for Hillary? Why in 2018 did he go and tell the Republicans, you ought to be more paranoid because I don't like the way the votes were carried? How could all these elections have gone Democrat? How could all of the close ones gone Democrat? Something was fishy there. He is setting up the predicate for saying at the next election, I'm not going to recognize the results here. I'm going to do what's best for the country. Uh, Again, we see this. We see this on other continents in the world in authoritarian countries. And it's like I said in the column, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but I really don't think I am. It's certainly ascribing a grand plan to him where, uh, to your previous point, maybe he's just looking at what's in front of him and has a more peaceful motivation. I want interest rates to go down, so I'm going to do X. Is that an alternative way of looking at it and perhaps a more optimistic one? It's it's a more optimistic one, and it's not, it's not an unreasonable point, but I don't think he's particularly interested in moving the levers of government to you know, better the lives of people. What it seems to me he's focused on is how do I accumulate the power to do whatever I want to do? You know, what kind of government is that? That's certainly not divided government where you have co-equal branches. I mean, look at what the way he's approaching how he fills jobs. He's very happy to have acting secretaries because each of these acting secretaries replace someone who was next in line, who is not beholden to him. So we now have a number of acting secretaries, acting chief of staff. We are He's moving into a place where the most important levers of government are, are filled either by a loyalist who's acting or, in some cases, a loyalist who can, who can get confirmed. And if you look at the entire scope of history... When you've got someone at the department running the Department of Defense who is a loyalist, you've got someone at the Department of Justice who's a loyalist. Those are two two pretty big places that if you want to make some very big changes in how we do things around here, th- those would be your first two calls. 
Speaking of other things that uh, Trump has done this week, I want to talk a little bit about um, actually a divide between the president and his White House. There's been some back and forth, and they actually have kind of acted as two different entities in how they've approached this sanctuary cities issue, the White House issuing a statement, and then um, not unheard of, the president subsequently going back on that statement via tweet. So what's going on with the sanctuary cities? Yeah, I want to – let me do this on a couple levels because I think it's a really interesting interesting thing. I'll, I'll start with the easy one, the absolute moral depravity of this president. I mean, let's take one step back. This is a president who has said on multiple occasions that he thinks the majority of these immigrants are criminals, murderers, and rapists to the point where, and I think he's the kind of person where as he says it enough, he believes it. So I think he's of the mindset that people coming over the border want to do bodily harm, murder, rape to the American people. So his latest idea is rather than to hold them at the border is to put them on buses, drive them to sanctuary cities, but only where Democrats control the congressional district and put them on the streets. So, again, just following his own thinking, if you're a Democrat and you don't agree with building the wall, I'm going to send several thousand rapists and murderers into your district and let's see what happens. It's sick. I mean, it's just absolutely depraved uh, thinking. And it's shocking to me that this idea didn't die immediately. I mean, there's lots of bad ideas that get thrown out in meetings in the White House. But this is now, this this came up in November. It came up in February. And then it came up again in April. Uh, so this is an idea that the president has tweeted he actively wants uh, pursued. The reason that it's important, and if you've worked in the White House, or if, more importantly, if you worked in an agency, you, you'll get this. When you get a call from the White House saying, the president wants you to do this, 99 times out of 100, you do it. And it better be like morally yeah, reprehensible. What's the one out of 100? <laughs> well, something that's clearly illegal or morally represented. I'll give you an example. When the president told his DHS secretary, close the port of El Paso. I want the border closed there. And she pushed back and said, I, I, we can't do that. The way you're trying to do it is illegal. And she lost her job uh, over that and, and other things. When the president went, was in California, and he said to the border agents, I don't care what the law says. Tell them they can't come in, even though the law says they have a right to present themselves and request asylum. And the border patrol had to push back saying, I can't do that because I'm the one who's going to get sued. I'm the one who's going to go to jail for that. But he doesn't care. It's not just a request for you to think about it. You know, these are presidential directives, and it's really hard to say no. And I respect the people who did say no here, you know, at the border, particularly in, in California. The third thing is, though, a, a, a functioning, successful White House needs to be able to communicate a consistent message to the American public. Everybody talks about Donald Trump's genius in marketing and branding. Look at the last couple of days. You have whiplash. You have you had a situation where a story came out in the Washington Post about the sanctuary cities. The White House went into overdrive to say, no, 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 no. It was just an idea that was briefly considered. We're not doing it. The next day, because there was still interest, they put out a written statement saying, we're not doing it. And then a half an hour later, the president tweets, we're doing it. It creates chaos um, it creates uncertainty, and it certainly doesn't 
allow uh, this White House to support their agenda with a communications and marketing plan that you know will get them where they want and need to go. Um, I, I just was having a back and forth uh, a few minutes ago with a friend, and this shows my little narrow focus, but if they did a briefing every day at the White House, this wouldn't happen because every it's, the briefing enforces discipline, and it enforces this sort of point inflection point every day where everybody has to look around and say, are you good? Are you good? Are you good? Is everybody good with it? And that includes the president. Like, here's what we're going to say. I can't tell you how many times there was a tough issue where the last person I check with would be the president. A couple of times I'd go in and say, okay, we're, I'm going to say this. And he'd say, well, who decided that? And I said, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, you know, thanks for asking for my opinion. And we are not going to say that because that's not how I feel. And But they just continue to blunder into these things. So this story is revealing on multiple levels. It just shows, I don't know whether it's the immorality or amorality of Donald Trump, but it, you you look at him saying something like this and it becomes clear he does not see these migrants as human beings. He sees them as chess pieces in, in, in a political game. He doesn't see people who don't agree with him as human beings because he wants to put these people to put, in, in his mind, once these Democrats have a few of their constituents killed and raped, they're going to come to my side. He's not thinking about Americans uh, as human beings. The only people who are human beings to him are people who voted for him and people who tell him how great he is. And that is a personal sickness for the president, but it's a it's a cancer on the presidency that you just can't overstate. I go on CNN most mornings and, you know, it's some mornings it's like, I'm outraged by this. I, I was outraged by something else yesterday and I'll be outraged by something different tomorrow. And you are, but it, the cumulative effect is to numb you. No one can be numb to this. No one. This just, this reveals so much about his character and so much about the dysfunction of the government. If this goes the way my column says it might, you'll look back on this and say, this was a turning point. This is when our democracy fell apart. This was when the president was allowed to impose however sick his will is, his will on the American public. And it's just, um, it's really scary. All right, Joe. Well, we always love hearing from you on what's going on. Otherwise, it's been, otherwise it's been a great week in the yeah, country. Right. <laughs> who knows what will be in the news next week? Sunshine and rainbows, perhaps. Yes. Well, it was great. Thanks for being here. And uh, we'll see you next week. Great. And now, Katie's final word. On Friday, April 12th, President Trump's ban on transgender troops serving in the military went into effect. The ban prevents individuals from serving who have been diagnosed with a condition of gender dysphoria. It effectively means that most transgender persons that are now serving in the military are disqualified from service, with a few limited exceptions. One, for members who have been stable for three years in their biological sex prior to joining the military, meaning 36 months after completion of surgery, and it carves out room for transgender persons without a gender dysphoria diagnosis or history as long as they serve in their birth sex. According to government numbers, there were approximately 8,980 service members in 2016 who identified as transgender. That means today there are thousands of men and women who have bravely sacrificed themselves 
and their families in service to their country, who were told they didn't belong. Now, I cannot speak for members of the military or members of the transgender community because I'm not a member of either. But I can give them the final word to speak for themselves. Today's final word comes from Army Captain Olivia Stelic. Soldiers matter to me, and they're the ones who will suffer if medical providers and leaders like me are banned from service. Has my transition made soldiers uncomfortable? Absolutely not. On the contrary, during my recent deployment to Afghanistan, soldiers opened up. They talked to me and told me things they never would have before, things that they said they've never told other people. I asked them why, and the consistent answer was that they valued my authenticity, my courage, and being myself. It allowed them to do the same thing. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.